If doctors told us that we'd made a breakthrough on COVID-19, we would rejoice. We'd feel hope that we could live our lives again, get back to work, back to doing what we want. Well, masks are a ticket to that freedom. We can help protect others and save lives by covering our noses and mouths, which is how the virus mainly spreads. Until there's a vaccine, grab the breakthrough that's already here. When we're out, it's masks on. A message to help keep you safe. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Arrowhead Pond of Anaheim. It is the crown jewel of NHL arenas. This would be the stage where Disney CEO Michael Eisner would build another Magic Kingdom. This one in the world of sport. So I feel the dreams and there was an arena and there was no team and uh, I added two and two up and I uh, came out to about 11 and uh, I went and uh, got the franchise. So the name of this team is officially the Mighty Ducks. makes sense for the Mighty Ducks to play only in one place, and Mickey's going to reveal that place now, and that is the Pond at Anaheim. There's a quack heard around the world. One, two, three. With that momentous quack, history was made. Now Disney had just seven months to build an NHL franchise. Eisner handpicked President Tony Tavares to make it happen. There were a lot of knowledgeable people uh, that said you'll never build it in time, you won't be able to sell tickets in time, you get TV deals to make, you get radio deals to make, you get advertising to sell, staff to assemble, you get ready for a draft that's going to happen in June. Uh, you really don't have any time. And uh, we were convinced that if we went out and hired the right people that we could pull it together. Tavares quickly named Jack Ferreira as general manager and Pierre Gauthier as his assistant. Together, they would set out to build the most successful expansion team in NHL history. But first, Michael Eisner took care of some unfinished business when the much-anticipated Mighty Ducks logo was unveiled. We're here to reveal the logos. So here is the official logo. We are one step closer to skating. Now all we need is uh, a coach and players and we'll be in great shape. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, quiet numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. Hi there, everybody. My name is Tim and uh, we appreciate you finding us on this week's episode of Good Seats still available. How are you, everybody? Thanks for finding us and uh, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. We appreciate it. And, um, you know, 185 episodes now of this uh, this craziness. Uh, we continue undaunted in our journeys into that of what used to be in professional sports. Uh, hockey is our focus this week, and uh, we're uh, excited to welcome two guests uh, this week. At uh, We've had uh, uh, a long uh, affinity for and appreciation of, and uh, have finally found an excuse to uh, to uh, encircle them and uh, entrap them into our little web of intrigue uh, as we seek to uh, find out the answers to various things 
uh, around, in this case, uh, teams uh, in the realm of professional hockey and specifically the NHL. We Lord knows we've done a bunch of WHA and a little uh, minor league stuff in the IHL and the ECHL, et cetera. Uh, but our friends, Chris Creamer, uh, he, the, uh, the uh, chief proprietor of the, uh, the essential website known as Chris Creamer's sportslogos.net, established in 1997. If you are looking for a logo uh, from the past or perhaps even to uh, discern what a, a logo might look like in the future, uh, Chris Creamer's sportslogos.net, that's sportslogos.net, it's uh, the essential source for all kinds of great uh, uh, interest and, and research behind and, and uh, the histories of uh, the various logos across all kinds of sports, pro, minor league, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he's one half of our, our guests this week. The other half is Todd Radom. Uh, he also uh, very uh, uh, well known in uh, logo creation and uh, 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 all kinds of other design uh, work in and around professional sports. You can find his work at Todd Radom, R-A-D-O-M, T-O-D-D-R-A-D-O-M.com. And uh, you may know him from his uh, previous book, actually the current book called Winning Ugly, A Visual History of the Most Bizarre Baseball Uniforms Ever Worn. And we loved that book. We think it's fascinating and it's, it's an awesome read, but uh, just a little outside of our strike zone, if you will, of uh, forgotten teams and leagues and sports and all that kind of stuff, the realms of defunct and previous, previously domiciled and all that stuff. Uh, but alas, we have uh, put a peanut butter and chocolate together to create a, a buttercup, buttercup, a peanut butter cup, yes, of in, of interest for us in our little realm of interest. Uh, and that is the book that uh, Todd and Chris have put together in the realm of hockey. It's uh, coming out uh, the first week of November. It is called Fabric of the Game, the stories behind the NHL's names, logos, and uniforms. Uh, it is uh, published by Sports Publishing, and like the name implies, it is literally a treasure trove of every major team or their lineages, and there's a little bit of a sort of a definitional kind of approach as to how they do that uh, in this book, but literally it goes team by team in visual and graphic uh, detail of every team that's currently playing or formally played in, or various incarnations thereof, within the NHL of not only their uniforms, uh, their sweaters, if you will, but their logos and, and all the stuff behind the iconography uh, that made up those teams. Um, and it's just amazing, fascinating stories. You heard perhaps a little bit of a, a, a hint of one of them in our little clip there, uh, the Anaheim Ducks that we know today. Uh, and, and not surprisingly, because Anaheim Ducks is first in the alphabet, uh, it's it's how we're going to start this uh, this episode. But it's how, how the book starts, of course. And that clip uh, is from let's see, it's from a movie called Defenders of the Pond, nineteen ninety four, uh, which is sort of the official Anaheim then Mighty Ducks uh, first season sort of wrap up. Uh, and um, as you heard, a little embedded in there, Michael Eisner, the former. Uh, CEO of of Walt Dis the Walt Disney Company, uh, announcing on May excuse me March first, nineteen ninety three, uh, that uh, the franchise was officially granted, and would be domiciled in the Pond of Anaheim, a brand new uh, facility at the time. 
And by June 7th, a few you know mere months later, almost th- about three months or so and change later, an actual logo was finally uh, uh, determined with, uh, with Mr. Eisner's, shall we say, fingerprints all over it. But uh, we get into not only that in, in our discussion uh, with Todd and Chris uh, in a few moments, not, not just specifically the Anaheim story, but, but as a great example of what's in this book and, and, and what we get into in our chat. The Anaheim Ducks of today and their very nice and cool stylized logo and colors and stuff uh, was preceded in these earliest of days by, uh, yeah, the cartoonish uh, approach, as you would imagine, a Disney ownership at the time to kind of uh, pursue. Uh, the Mighty Ducks, obviously the very successful film and its uh, its sequel uh, just prior to that. And uh, the, uh, you know, I, if you're a long time uh, Anaheim Ducks fan dating back to the Mighty Ducks era, and it was an era for sure. Um, you 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 probably have some uh, uh, wistful and maybe even uh, winceful uh, memories of sort of how they went to market uh, the uh, the pomp, the pageantry, the uh, the Disney on Ice uh, uh, intros, uh, and uh, the cartoon ish uh, approach to uh, what the uh, the logo and the uh, uh, the look and the feel and and uh, the the, uh, the the sweater and all that kind of stuff and yeah you know in, in the nineties you know a lot of a lot of things were uh, were tried out if you will uh, that were sort of breakthrough and brash. Uh, you might remember uh, ESPN two, for example, a, a good example of that brashness. But uh, you know whether whether you're a fan and you 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 wax nostalgic about the Mighty Ducks uh, incarnation or the current Ducks uh, look and feel under the new ownership, uh, that's a, a microcosm of what we're going to get into this week as we kind of get into the NHL and the various uh, fabrics, if you will, of the game. All kinds of stuff around what the logos and the uh, uh, the uniforms and all that kind of stuff and the history and the uh, the reasons behind all of it. Uh, with our guests this week, logo and uh, look and feel uh, and uh, 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 expertise, if you will, from our friends Chris Creamer and Todd Radom as we get into the NHL. And yeah, the, the WHA does sneak in here a little bit. Uh, there is some, even some minor league stuff that sneaks in here a little bit because uh, a bunch of the teams, uh, some of which still w- are with us, and frankly, some not, uh, were in got into the NHL from, shall we say, other routes from other places, other leagues, actually. So uh, we do touch a little bit on this. Uh, I hate to disappoint you, WHA fans. Uh, and yes, I do grill Messrs. Creamer and Radom about this. Uh, they, uh, we, they don't really get into the WHA per se. Lord knows there are great logos and and jerseys and sweaters and all that kind of stuff, uh, looks and feels and, and iconography uh, from that. And uh, well, you'll you'll hear their answer as to why they d- decided not to sort of get into that at least yet. Hint, hint, uh, wink, wink. Uh, but uh, Lord knows that the NHL, in all its history, and yes, even in the you know the original six, there was a absolutely a very vibrant history prior to the quote-unquote original six. Lord knows the NHL has plenty of logos and uh, stories uh, to get into, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a book enough for sure. It's, uh, it's almost, I don't know, it's almost 265 pages worth of stuff. So rest assured, there are plenty of stories embedded in what we're going to talk about this week, the NHL and uh, the various fabrics, if you will, of the game 
uh, with Chris Creamer and Todd Radom coming up in just a moment's time. This is a hoot of a conversation, and uh, we hope you'll enjoy it for sure. Uh, our uh, sponsor this week is our friends at 503 Sports, and in particular, it's our pal Dustin Alameda out in uh, beautiful Portland, Oregon. Uh, 503-sports.com. They call themselves the king of throwbacks. And absolutely, of course, they are, especially when it comes to hockey. You want to make sure, not just uh, you know for, for hockey, there's all kinds of other sports uh, represented at 503-sports.com. But hockey is, uh, is a great standout section. Uh, and if you're interested in some of these uh, teams that we're going to get into in our conversation in a few moments, how about the Colorado Rockies? New, not the baseball team, but the previously domiciled version of what are now the New Jersey Devils. And obviously, before even the Rockies, they were known as the Kansas City Scouts. That jersey's there available for you there too at 503 Sports. You may know that 503 Sports uh, fancy themselves as uh, great creators uh, and, and flame keepers, if you will, of uh, great jerseys, great uh, hockey you know, uh, jerseys uh, handcrafted with love uh, with the official 503 Sports uh, logo of authenticity. They uh, they scour uh, the Internet and uh, all the photography that's available out there to make sure that they get every every detail correct. And not only the Rockies and the Kansas City Scouts, but as flame keepers, yes, the Atlanta Flames. Uh, the argument that I make, probably one of the best uh, logos, certainly ahead of its time back in the day. Uh, you can get an Atlanta Flames jersey there. How about the original Quebec Nordiques jersey or or any of the Golden Seals looks and feels? Sure. The Minnesota North Stars are there for you in jersey form. Uh, and, you know, all kinds of uh, shirts and uh, caps and all kinds of stuff. Yes. And even the Cleveland Barons for two years uh, in their brief stay in the NHL during the 1970s. Indeed, all of those jerseys, and uh, supplemental T-shirts and caps and all that kind of stuff, among many other sports and many other leagues and many other offerings, are there available for you at 503 Sports. Again, 503-sports.com. And make sure that you use the promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And that adds up. You buy a couple of jerseys and a T-shirt or two, uh, you're going to be saving a hefty bundle uh, by using that promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, at 503 dashsports.com. The king of throwbacks they are. Hockey extraordinarily in this case, but uh, lots of other great stuff. Check them out. Uh, the holidays are coming up, believe it or not, and a wonderful opportunity to uh, get your uh, holiday shopping uh, done for the sports fan in your life. Again, 503sports503-sports.com. Thank you, Dustin, and thank you for not only checking them out, but listening to this tremendous episode with Chris Creamer, and Todd Radom, as we talk about logos and looks and, and iconography and graphic design, it's all in here as we talk about some of the hits and, and certainly misses of the history of the NHL. Here it comes. Please enjoy. Why don't you uh, both uh, uh, separately uh, announce yourselves? Who, who are you each? And maybe a little background for our audience who may not be aware of your uh, separate, and then we'll talk about collaborative doings. And I know, Chris, just for kicks, we'll start with you and, and then move on to Todd. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, Chris Creamer here. I am in my late 30s, and I live just outside of Toronto, and uh, I am uh, married, so sorry, ladies. 
Um, I have worked on sportslogos.net, a online collection of logos and uniforms for the last 23 years. I started it when I was 14 years old, and I'm still doing it now. And it has led me to learn so much about this wonderful world, world of logos and allowed me to also get to know great people like my colleague and designer, Todd Radom. Go ahead, Todd. Well, thank you, Chris. You let you could just like leave the uh, the fat fastball over the plate or whatever the hockey equivalent is. But I'm Todd Radom. I am a designer. I am a brand consultant. I have been uh, working dealing with the image uh, images and for sports events, uh, teams, leagues uh, for just about thirty years now. So uh, I'm kind of a pioneer in our field. I always joke about the fact that when I started. Uh, Started out in sports design, we could have a conference in the back of a Starbucks if such things existed back then. There would probably be about four people. And, of course, now uh, sports design has exploded. Um, but I'm also the author of the book Winning Ugly, which is my loving homage to some of the most, and I'm making air quotes here, uh, questionable uh, baseball uniforms in history. Uh, and Chris and I have known each other for quite some time. We've talked about collaborating for quite some time. So to see this project, Fabric of the Game, come to fruition, and to be talking with you today, Tim, it <laughs> is a great thrill. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you're getting, I'm, I know I'm getting chills just thinking about it. But um, no, seriously, I, so all right, let, let, let's, let's back up. So um, as I sort of alluded to, I mean, we've had some... Um, We've kind of gone direct into sort of the intersection of sports and art. Uh, in particular, I, I remember a conversation kind of early on with a, a guy named uh, Waylon Moore, uh, who uh, responsible for a number of things, including the uh, iconic Atlanta Braves uh, uh, uniforms around the uh, time of Hank Aaron's uh, ascendancy to uh, uh, immortality with uh, hitting the breaking the home run uh, record and all that. Uh, the Atlanta Chiefs. Uh, soccer team, uh, the New York Cosmos, a team that frankly is the excuse uh, that I use to get into this show because that's that's what hooked me when I was a kid. And, and that sort of was the, uh, you know, preteen adolescent kind of sports hook and then the, the abandonment of such. But the, the, um, maybe each of you can kind of tell me your individual, I don't know, uh, uh, rabbit hole uh, uh, fallings uh, into around uh, logos, iconography, and that kind of stuff, and then maybe a little bit of, of how the, you know, how that sort of maybe took over your professional or at least your, uh, just your your general interest uh, parts of your life. Like, what what is it about these imageries, uh, these images, and the imagery and the iconography and the and even the uniforms and all that kind of stuff that? But why? That's the question. Why? Yeah, hey, it's Todd. Let me take this first. Uh, age before beauty, Chris. <laughs> so I am in my late 50s, and I actually do know Waylon Moore. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to meet him in Atlanta two years ago, which was a thrill because, uh, like you, Tim, you know, I, I've always had this fond appreciation for these modern designs that he worked on. But uh, kind of a, a meandering answer, but but I'll try to, like, tie it up with a neat bow. Uh, I've been uh, I do what I do for a living, but I've been observing what I call the visual culture of sports, particularly professional sports, for as long as I can remember, since I was a kid, which is before Chris was born, well before Chris was born. <laughs> so what was this like uh, back in, you know, to, to be a, a sports logo geek as a kid growing up in the 70s? 
Well, you know, these things were not trumpeted uh, beforehand. Licensing and marketing were, uh, you know, really in, in their infancy relative to what we have now. So if, if uh, you were a kid like me growing up in the, the New York area in the, in the 70s, in the early 70s, you would turn the TV on and, and opening day, the Mets might be playing the Cubs and you'd say, geez, the, the Mets have these funky collars. They have gotten rid of their buttons and they've gone to Henley shirts. Uh, or in the case of expansion teams like Chris's Toronto Blue Jays, born in 1977, uh, just you know going to Yankees games in 1977, more than anything, so I could see the Toronto Blue Jays in their beautiful powder blue uniforms. So this affected me. Uh, it obviously influenced what I did as a, a uh, professional. And uh, in writing about this stuff, you know, I have found that that I love telling stories that. Uh, people may not be aware of, and actually finding credits for designers who toiled long before me. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's always interesting, you know, uh, learning, about, learning about these designers who were uh, unheralded and vastly underpaid. Well, I'm uh, 20 years Todd's junior, so uh, my story is not going to be quite so retro delicious as his. Uh, mine starts in the early, in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, there was no internet. <clears throat> uh, and I did have some sort of natural, uh, natural love for logos and design. I have no idea where it came from. Uh, my dad's not a designer. He's a sports nut, but he's not a designer. And it must run somewhat naturally in my body because my son now, who's only seven years old, he's obsessed with it too. But when I was his age, seven years old, early 90s, uh, I used to like look at the old, uh, you know, top sports cards look at the logos, I'd try to draw them and, and learn about them. And uh, the only way we could see an old logo was if I could find an old hockey card lying around the house somewhere. And we had a neighbor who found out I loved hockey cards and brought over this big box of cards from the 70s he had lying around. And that's where I saw, you know, the Vancouver Canucks and their hockey stick logo for the first time in my life and uh, learned that there was a team called the Colorado Rockies and the Kansas City Scouts. And just seeing that there was this whole world of hockey that existed uh, beyond my own knowledge of the sport and, and it opened up this whole world um, that, that really appealed to me. And like, I can remember, you know, taking the Canucks card up to my dad and saying, you know, isn't this a little silly? Their logo is just a hockey stick. And, you know, him pointing out, oh, that's a C. And then later on uh, showing him like the old Milwaukee Brewers logo on, you know, on the baseball cards too. And, you know, why is their logo just a baseball glove? Oh no, that's an M and a B. And those little moments are like, wow, these things are, are really interesting to me. Uh, they're really special. And I want to learn as much as I can as possible about these logos. And like Todd, you know, being a logo nut, even though it was a little later than him, there still wasn't a lot of coverage of this stuff. And, you know, just remembering for, for us here in Canada, uh, you know, hockey is the number one thing. And we would always watch, at least I would always watch the NHL draft just to see which teams had new uniforms. That was the only way I could I could learn about them because it wasn't covered anywhere else. And, you know, just turning on a, a TV and seeing, oh, that's what the new St. Louis Blues uniforms look like. You know, what are they thinking? They're crazy. And then looking around and nobody cares. <laughs> nobody wants to talk to me about this. And which is why, you know, uh, a few years later when the Internet came around, uh, starting a website, and learning that I wasn't the only person who cared about this sort of thing, that there were you know thousands of people out there that wanted to learn about this and talk about it, uh, it, it was a pretty cool feeling. 
Well, like Paul Lucas and the uh, Uniwatch site, right, which he has ESPN absorbed, and and it's all it's it's become. I wouldn't call it a cottage industry. It's, it's become almost. Uh, I won't even say it's acceptable. It's almost a uh, a latent uh, similar uh, cadre of folk who who have been uh, you know similarly interested in all that sort of other stuff that you know goes beyond the actual game and the statistics and uh, and those kinds of things. And and it's um, it, to me, it's a fascinating uh, uh, part of the history of. Not only teams and leagues no longer with us, but but currently, you know, the current teams and and how they evolved into the looks and the and the dynamics and the throw all that stuff that comes along with it. It's it's absolutely part of the fabric of each teams and leagues' histories. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the one of the the thing that 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 one of the things that really is strewn throughout our book, you know, like you, Tim. <clears throat> I think I, I can speak for Chris and say that. You know, both of us are fascinated with history of all kinds. Um, but uh, some of these unusual teams that that we didn't know much about before really diving into the book, the Hamilton Tigers of the world, an NHL team that played in the early 1920s. And even, you know, for me, I remember the Kansas City Scouts around for two years in the 70s. You know, the Colorado Rockies, the NHL version of the Colorado Rockies, of course, that you reference. But, you know, we, we kind of challenge ourselves at the outset of this project to think about just strip it down to the basics. Why are the Toronto Maple Leafs called the Maple Leafs? Forget the look. We're going to get into the look of it. Um, And I think that, you know, the NHL in particular is so interesting because, of course, the original six uh, configuration lasted for so long. And then you had these spasms of expansion that uh, gave birth to these new teams and consequently new names and looks. And, um, you know, there, there was a lot to dig into over here and made us think. Yeah. And, and, you know, our very first episode about three and a half years ago was uh, the California Golden Seals or, or was it the Oakland Seals or was it the, you know, what, you, you get the drill, right? So the, even the name of the team uh, changed over time. But, but no one can forget, frankly, or frankly, a lot of people don't even realize that they're of a certain young age or so. The um, I wouldn't call it garishness, or maybe I would, right? The just the, the uh, and a really good example of that uh, uh, six-team great expansion uh, in 1967, and and that just uh, again opens up a whole Pandora's box. But it's interesting too. You mentioned sort of, you know, maybe the NHL almost trying to catch up. We've talked about it on a number of different episodes, right? I mean, by 1967, 1968, late 60s. Um, maybe I have the, the, the year wrong. No, I said they were 67, right? The, you know, NHL was uh, almost behind the curve in terms of right, the fact that there were only six teams. But even it's interesting, too, as we get into uh, why this book and why hockey and all that stuff, um, the uh, the original six wasn't even that, right? Because you get into teams that were pre-original six, which is the biggest of all ironies when it comes to this sport, the NHL. Well, the original six name is... It's it is a misnomer, but it's relative to 1967 because they had the two divisions, right? They had the original six division, the East division, and then the expansion six. So it, I, a lot of people that they like to slag on it, they go, "Well, they're not really the original six, but they are versus the new six in 1967." But as as you say, like the original six, some of those teams didn't start playing in the NHL until the league's you know ninth or tenth season. So you know, not really original. Um, the league didn't even go to the United States until like the mid 1920s when they went to Boston. 
the NHL, born uh, out of the ashes of another league in 1917, <clears throat> was down to just you know a handful of teams, and then expansion goes and fits and starts long before any of us were around. And I think it's fascinating because if you if you look at uh, the the first wave of new teams, whatever you want to call them, in NHL history, they're basically you know meant to fill buildings. In, uh, you know, some familiar places, but in some cases, new territory. The New York Americans, for instance. Yeah, I wanted to focus on them. They they were the one team that kind of didn't sort of make that jump to the the original six, so to speak. And and arguably one of the more memorable and uh, iconic looks that you can ever imagine in hockey. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, they they played uh, during the era of the Great Depression and uh, essentially failed uh, in the, the early years of World War II. But uh, a lot of this, you know, we think about the NHL or most of our professional sports leagues now as these behemoth money makers with all of these, you know, revenue streams. And I think it it, it bears uh, thinking about this. The NHL, uh, no different from the early National Football League, right around the same time. You know, they needed to sell tickets, put people in the seats. It was before television. It was way before licensing, before logos were put on stuff. So it was a bit of a seat-of-the-pants operation. You had these uh, haves and have-nots, much more so than you have now. And uh, I think we do say it in the book at one point, the the founding fathers, and they were all fathers, of the National Hockey League would probably be surprised to see their their enterprise, uh, you know, this multi-billion dollar juggernaut now. Well, before we kind of get some, some, some to some granularities, let, let's take a step back for a second. Why... Uh, tell tell me how the collaboration occurs and why hockey maybe as uh, as the maybe the first sport and expression of that collaboration. I mean, I, there are a number of different sports and situations and defunctnesses and all kinds of things that that probably could have been uh, vying for your attention. Why hockey and why uh, uh, why the NHL and and uh, the history of the teams and such? Well. Uh- you know, I, I was looking for an excuse to work with Todd for a very long time. He's he's someone I sort of admired from afar, and uh, and I finally got to meet him maybe about seven years ago or so in New York down at Katz's Deli. No, that was where was it? the Old Town, right? Yes, 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 the Old Town. Sorry, not Katz's. And uh, <clears throat> this idea kept, you know, rattling around in my brain that I really wanted to do a book talking about the origin stories behind various teams, their logos, you know, finally answer these questions. And, you know, books like these have existed in the past, but each team is only given maybe a paragraph. I, I wanted to dive in really deep. I wanted to talk to the designers. I wanted to talk to the people who made the decisions. And I, you know, having read a lot of Todd's uh, pieces that he's written for like the Sporting News, doing deep dives into uh, team origins and logo origins, I thought this this is perfect. Todd's a great guy to work with. Plus, it's an excuse to work with Todd, which is, you know, a thrill for someone like me. And the reason why uh, we sort of gravitated towards hockey was around this whole time where Todd and I were discussing this idea. Uh, I was working with the National Hockey League uh, on their centennial centennial celebrations in 2017. And I had the great honor of being able to go into the Hockey Hall of Fame Resource Center almost every single day as part of that job going through all the artifacts, uh, old uh, memorabilia, stuff worn by like uh, like Martin Brodeur, Jacques Plante, and, and, you know, sort of just, you know, putting on the white gloves, showing up to work one day, and, you know, the Stanley Cup sitting on my desk getting polished, you know, little cool things like that. 
And and knowing that, you know, I sort of had the access to that Hall of Fame Resource Center, I figured hockey's a great place to start because I can get in there and I can do a lot of great research to really, really fill out this book. Oh, my God. Talk about like being the proverbial kid in a candy store. Uh, how long <laughs> did they let you in there and did you try to hide and, and uh, make them try to find you? <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that go through your head when you're staring at the Stanley Cup for several hours uh, unguarded. Um, <laughs> You know, well, first thing I did was took a selfie with it. <laughs> um, and I remember at one point uh, there was a school group getting a tour of the the area. And uh, I took over, I looked over at them and I, I caught a glimpse of two kids sort of peeking around the corner, staring at me as I was doing my work. And I put myself in their shoes and I thought, man, if I was them staring at me, I'd think that get, that guy's got the coolest job in the world and I wish I could do that someday. And that just sort of, you know, regrounded me and said, okay, really enjoy this. Look what you're doing. This is a picture yourself being that kid again. And you, you probably can't even imagine that you're doing this right now. So, so give me a sense then of how you decided to sort of structure this, right? So, uh, and the book is fantastic and it's everything that you would think it would be with, with the title fabric of the game, right? It's, it's, it's the visuals, it's the, uh, it's the it's the looks of the sweaters and 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 the histories sort of associated with those, whether they, they were, you know, the 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 uh, the coloring and the, the the rationale and and how it represented various things about the teams and, and their their uh, various and sometimes sordid histories. How do you you know, obviously, a lot of it's framed in uh, the actual teams and the and the various incarnations of those teams. But but how do you sort of. And I guess it, it would sort of be expected, I guess, like, OK, we'll just go look at the list, you know, dial up Wikipedia and look at all the the individual exp, uh, versions of the teams and just and we'll just fill them in. But but it's it's a lot more than that. Right. Because some of these histories are actually entwined uh, or dependent upon each other or, frankly, representative of things. I mean, you mentioned the Great Expansion, right? Late 60s, culturally, uh, including graphically and visually. Right. Uh, uh, uh you know, entwined with maybe how some of these teams go to market for the first time. So I, I guess the, the question in there is, how do you kind of go about sort of framing all this without maybe going down perhaps what I would imagine would be a rabbit hole of uh, of just uh, all kinds of ephemera that you get exposed to by uh, opening up this Pandora's box with all the artifacts and stuff? <laughs> well, I will be the first to go on record here and say that if Chris had his way, this would be a 29-volume encyclopedia <laughs> containing... 5,700 pages each, but, <laughs> and that's because we had so much great stuff to embrace and think about, but, uh, you know, I immediately think about, you know, we started talking about this project in, uh, I think in the, the early part of 2017, right, Chris? Yep. And, and uh, it, it started to come together when I flew up to Toronto in uh, October, 2017, just about three years ago. Uh, and Chris and I spent uh, a couple of days with our friends at the aforementioned Hockey Hall of Fame uh, Resource Center, uh, just, you know, having having credibility there because of Chris's association um, and kind of, you know, OK, we're going to approach we want to we want to tell the story of every team in the history of the National Hockey League. I like to point out the fact that this book includes the Montreal Wanderers who played I believe six games in the league's first season. Their arena burned down. Uh, they won one game, but they're in here. And you know, for the purposes of this, you know, complete thing, 
they are as important to the story as the Montreal Canadiens. So I go up to Toronto. We spend a couple of days up there. And uh, I think our I think it's fair to say that that uh, you know like like any good uh, Indiana Jones kind of uh, scenario here, we started to dig and we found things in places that went beyond what we thought we were going to find. So yeah, we could tell the story of every uh, Cleveland Barons jersey that they ever wore. There weren't too many of them, um, but we started to find out who their logo designer was and uh, what the symbolism of that logo meant. And this is really hard stuff to find in a lot of cases because, you know, this stuff was usually just created with the visual appeal in mind. And, you know, again, as I said earlier, the designers weren't celebrated. The stories weren't told. There was not much to say about them. But I think, Chris, you can expand upon it. But but I think the mission was we want something that is, uh, you know, tells the story of every one of these clubs doesn't belabor a lot of stuff. In other words, we're going to tell the the story of the Boston Bruins uh, franchise and their Stanley Cups, but without spreading it out over a million pages, and uh, focus on these three te- three things: the team, the name of the team, and how they got it, and their various looks throughout the years. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. And Todd is 100% correct. Uh, I wanted to go as detailed as possible and show every single uniform change and tweak over the years. I. I just can't help myself. He sort of brought me back to reality <laughs> in the worlds of, of publishing. And, you know, no legitimate publisher is going to publish a 3,000-page book about this. And that's okay. That's what my website's for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I and obviously both of your your web's uh, offerings are, are they're, uh, not only bookmarked for me, but they're just, they're just immense resources, right? Uh, the way Todd interprets stuff and, and the way Chris is sort of a, a – uh, bibliographized, if that's a word of, uh, of, you know, of logos and histories and stuff. Um, so, all right, here's a truly geek question, but it, but it's, it's germane to, uh, the exploration that we, we, uh, find ourselves in this, this silly little show. Um, I, I'm really curious as to how, uh, you demarcate, uh, which teams are, uh, featured in their own chapters and which ones are folded into, a longer history. Like, so for example, right, the Detroit Falcons as, as uh, most hockey historians, and I don't consider myself one, but I, I do some crack research on the side. Uh, they were, you know, the, obviously the Detroit Red Wings of today, very well known and long established, but there were two incarnations along their uh, early history as the Cougars and the Falcons, obviously with their own logos and, and looks. Uh, but I'm assuming those got folded into the Red Wings versus them being separately called out, unlike, let's say, uh, the California Seals and or the Cleveland Barons, who uh, neither of which exist anymore, that, that the team terminated after Cleveland, but get, get their own separate entries uh, in this book. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is where do you draw the line on on a separation and a, and a uh, versus a, a continuation, I guess, of story? Well, a lot of it had to do with, you know, identities. Right. And. I'll get to the Detroit Cougars Falcons example in a second, but uh, you look at the California Golden Seals and Cleveland Barons, despite, you know, officially being the same franchise, those are two distinct identities, right? The, the fact that they moved, that's part of the story. However, the Golden Seals name, colors, logos have absolutely nothing to do with the Cleveland Barons name, colors, and, and uh, a logo. Same goes with the Carolina Hurricanes and the Hartford Whalers. Same franchise, two distinct looks, uh, completely separate of each other. Now you look at a team like the Calgary Flames or the Dallas Stars, 
we merged the Calgary and Atlanta Flames together. Same name, same colors. They moved, but essentially, in terms of identity, they changed their logo and, and nothing more. Same with the uh, Minnesota North Stars, the Dallas Stars. They even kept the same logo when they moved. So really, it made sense to keep that chapter together. Uh, the Detroit Red Wings, Falcons, Cougars, along with the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, St. Pat's Arenas, that's the same franchise. They're thought of as the same team, as the same identity. So we treated that more of a change in a logo or color scheme that also had a name change. It's it's really one team, one history group together. It made it a lot cleaner. Uh, otherwise, we could end up with something like 70 chapters if we, you know, we could have done a California Golden Seals chapter, could have done a Oakland Seals chapter, et cetera, et cetera. Could have done seven chapters on the Seals alone if we went with every name change. It, it just made sense to group things ever, uh, together a little more like that, a little cleaner. Yeah, and I think that, that if I could interject for a second, one of the – it's a great question here, Tim, and we did sort of agonize over the structure of this, and we, we funneled things through and we got into a good place. But I think the two weird outlier exceptions for me were the two different Ottawa Senators teams, which are not connected in the least. The Ottawa Senators of the early NHL years, uh, they moved to St. Louis, became the St. Louis Eagles, and then folded after one season. And, of course, the current Ottawa Senators are an expansion club. Uh, and the Winnipeg Jets are the other example, uh, a WHA team. They moved to Arizona. They currently play as the Coyotes. And then the Atlanta Thrashers moved to Winnipeg uh, you know, 10 years ago or so and become what we know now as the Winnipeg Jets. We decided to lump those each into their own uh, separate things, you know, Winnipeg Jets 1, Winnipeg Jets 2, etc. No, I think that makes sense. And, 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 and you know, I, I, I rather flip when I ask the question, but but it does matter, frankly. I mean, I, and not just from a quote unquote historical perspective, but, you know, I, one of the questions that I, I constantly ask people who uh, we talk about uh, when we discuss a team or a situation, uh, what I would generally call previously domiciled, uh, is the sort of like, where does that history, if you will, and the right, shall we say, uh, to do throwbacks and and homages and you know and, and uh, histories and documentaries and all that kind of stuff. You know where where do those reside? And sometimes actually those are kind of murky, right? We're, we're dancing around for. I mean, there are a couple of different uh, graftings and or uh, tributaries that kind of meander and, and cul-de-sac, I guess, uh, to mix some metaphors. You know, for example, like the Minnesota North Stars and the and the San Jose Sharks and the Dallas Stars and, you know, that sort of like how those, our friend Howard Baldwin was sort of in, in the mix of that, Pittsburgh Penguins sort of in that, you know, like teams kind of splitting and it's, you know, it's not necessarily a clear shot, right? Yet, you know, you look at, you ask somebody, uh, you know, about the San Jose Sharks. Well, there's a little bit of Minnesota North Stars in that story. There's a little bit of, I mean, there's a lot of different sort of, there's some mongrelness to some of this, right? So I can imagine if you really care about this stuff and you really, you know, geek out and, and consider yourself an historian and understanding sort of these stories, it, it, there are some some hairs to split here in terms of making some decisions. I could see, for example, though, the, even though the New Jersey Devils started out as the Kansas City Scouts uninterrupted through a few years in Colorado as the original Rockies or the Rockies, not the baseball version, right? Totally makes sense to me that the scouts, the Colorado Rockies and the New Jersey Devils, very distinctively different, right? But to your point, right, the Flames, yeah, I mean, changing an A to a C, I don't think the C works nearly as well as the A. I think the A was graphically one of the most elegant and maybe ahead of its time logos in all of sports. 
Um, but I, I, I think, frankly, that when I was reading through all of this, it feels more authentic and genuine and like you cared. And I think that matters, frankly. Well, that's great. I appreciate that. We appreciate that. And I, I think one of along those lines, you know, the grafting and, you know, sometimes these are not uh, clean origin or conclusion stories. I was struck by the fact that uh, there are a couple of early NHL teams, the New York Americans that we referenced before, the Philadelphia Quakers were another. Uh, in, in looking at some of these chapters, uh, we found that, uh, okay, we're the, we're, we're the Hamilton Tigers, too. Uh, was the franchise terminated? What happened there? You know, uh, and, and in a couple of cases, uh, these teams folded and they kind of hung around as ghost teams for years. They're an example of the fact that uh, I believe the, the, the Quakers who folded in, you know, after one season. Uh, you know, they, they, they kept knocking at the door of the NHL and they were finally terminated uh, in the late 30s. But, yeah, I mean, there are some, you know, I think we say in the book, the, the, the Kansas City Scouts, the Colorado Rockies, the New Jersey Devils. That is, you know, one continuous family line. I think I think we say that the Rockies represent the meat in the sandwich. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there are there are some that are a little messy and we tried to get these details right. We tried to be as authoritative as possible. And most importantly, I think, Chris, you know, really, you keep coming back to this. You know, there are these things that are taken for granted. Uh, our friends at the NHL, for instance, you mentioned the Atlanta Flames, Tim, and that's a, what a beautiful modern logo. But the name of the Flames, I think, uh, you know, there, there's a mystique that's been built up around them, and we try to set the record straight. And what I love about the Flames story is that, um, like, later on when they moved to Calgary, they end up keeping the name. And you think, well, they just kept the name. They didn't do anything about it. But what Todd and I learned in this research is that the Calgary Flames, they actually held a name the team contest when they relocated. And they just happened to pick Flames as the winning entry <laughs> because it was such a good name. And how it uh, now represented the oil industry of Alberta. And uh, they loved the color scheme and it could turn into a, a cool logo. They, they wanted to keep the Atlanta Flames logo, right? They wanted to say the A stood for Alberta. Todd, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, to me, you, you just see, okay, they moved. They, they kept the name like every NFL team does. But no, they actually went out. They had a contest. And the fans love names, the name Flames so much that they, they just picked it again. Yeah, and that and um, and that certainly speaks to, but it also brings up some other questions, right? So, the second incarnation of the Winnipeg Jets, right? Um, you know, who gets the history, if you will, of the original Winnipeg Jets, right? Um, and there are arguments to be made that, well, you know, they're they're a brand new franchise. They they relocated, uh, you know, and the the old Jets, you know, are are really, you know, their history is in Arizona, right? Uh, but you know, it's 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 a reincarnation of the team in Winnipeg. So we're, or or you know, Minnesota North Stars, right? It's probably even more complicated, right? There's there's the Dallas angle, there's the San Jose angle, and there's the Minnesota Wild angle, frankly, because it's the team that came back to the Minnesota St. Paul metropolitan area, and there's there's a the generation or two of fans that remember the Minnesota North Stars and back in the day, right? Let alone the Fighting yeah. Saints, which is another story. But. Um, <laughs> And I'll get to that in a minute, right? But uh, it—it's not—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not important, but it is important, right? And and I, at least to me, it is. And you know, anytime throwbacks come into play, or we talk about the Hartford Whalers being the probably the uh, the most popular 
uh, in terms of sales of any of the former teams in the league. So actually, I think even outselling some of the current teams in terms of, of merchandise. Um, there's power in these logos, in these memories, and what these teams were, and frankly, where their histories lie, uh, either in people's minds or, or maybe when it comes down to dollars and cents, uh, economically. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Chris, I, I'm sorry, Tim, uh, I, I think that, that once upon a time, this was pretty straightforward. A team moved and the uh, fan base that got left behind flipped up dual middle fingers and said, good riddance, goodbye. The Brooklyn Dodgers would be an example in baseball. But I think things changed when the Cleveland Browns uh, moved to Baltimore in the late 90s. And a second Cleveland Browns team was born in the NFL. And uh, they decided to, you know, move the records around, basically. And we have seen this come up time and time again across various sports. Who owns history? I mean, this is a pretty deep question. But uh, your Hartford Whalers example, I think, is represents this, this epitome of what we're talking about here. The Hartford Whalers uh, moved down south to North Carolina not that long ago. It's within a lot of fans' memories. Uh, and they it was a very bitter, bitter divorce. Uh, the Hurricanes brought back the Whalers' beautiful logo and sweaters, uniforms in, I think, September 2018. And it just ripped the scab open, right? In the case of uh, Hartford, they have not gotten another NHL franchise. And candidly, maybe between the three of us, they are never going to get another NHL franchise. Uh, don't tell the Whaler guys one of our episodes from a year and a half ago. But, you know, they, 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 they sort of understand the dynamic, but they're not going to give up. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that that's a little bit different than, uh, you know, what this current Winnipeg, Winnipeg got a team back, right? Um, yeah, so, so I think it does come down to who owns history, how, do, how is it exploited, is it done with sensitivity? Even a couple of years ago, and Chris, you could pick up on this, I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the, the Dallas Stars wore, or was it the Wild, that wore North Stars uh, uniforms in warm-ups, but not during a game? Uh, it was for a outdoor classic alumni game. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and there was, there was controversy right. attached to that. Yes. Um, well, I mean, there's two answers to who owns history, right? There's the official legal, you know, who owns, does do the Arizona Coyotes own the original Winnipeg Jets logo and colors? Uh, or uh, the other side is uh, what do the fans think? And ultimately, what really matters is what the fans think, right? I mean, for the purposes of our book, we go by what the league says and what's official. But in the reality of life, Right. How the fans perceive things is realistically how things go. Right. So the, the fans of the Arizona Coyotes, they don't care so much about. Well, I can't speak for them, but uh, I presume they don't care so much about, you know, retiring Bobby Hall's number or Thomas Steen's number, or Timu Solani's number, as much as Winnipeg Jets fans of the current team. Uh, they love Bobby Hall. They love Timu Solani. There's no connection between the Coyotes and the Jets and those players of the past who never played a game in Arizona for their team. Uh, yet they still, you know, retire their numbers and and don't uh, give them out anymore. Um, and as far as the uh, the Hurricanes and the Hartford Whalers, Todd made a good point that Hartford sadly is never getting another NHL team again. Uh, so from my point of view, and again speaking for Whalers fans, I didn't lose my team, so. I don't know how it feels, but if the alternative to the Hartford Whalers 
uh, uniforms is that they're sitting in a closet, never to be seen again, never to be worn again, or they're worn by the Carolina Hurricanes on the ice. I'm going to have the Hurricanes wear those uniforms. And for my son, who, who like me, went back and looked at old hockey cards and, and how I love the Colorado Rockies, he loves the Hartford Whalers. Uh, when the Hurricanes wore those uniforms, the whole family was gathered around the laptop watching that game streamed. And this this family of uh, four in Toronto, you know, we're all Leaf fans, and we're cheering as hard as we can for the Carolina Hurricanes wearing Hartford Whaler uniforms, having a great time, uh, something that we never would have done in any other possible scenario, and it was only because the Hurricanes are wearing these uniforms. See, now that, now that it speaks to the power of logo and colors and the memories that they stir up and or uh, remind us of. All right, so but let me ask you this. So this this actually brings up a very interesting uh, question that I was going to wait till later, but I think it's appropriate now. So one of the questions I asked Waylon Moore uh, uh, almost three years ago now uh, sort of kind of gravitates around, I think, where we're kind of dancing around, which is really the economics of this, right? I mean, uh, you guys both know and probably are, are most uh, exquisitely positioned to, to understand this more than maybe most is there's just the sheer uh, uh, explosion of money in professional sports, especially in and around merchandise and logos and all that stuff, right? Where, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was a little bit more quaint, a little bit more, you know, uh, what the uniform looks like. And it wasn't sort of this massive uh, merchandising industry, frankly, uh, that that exists today, which is obviously uh, that symptomatic of, of pro sports generally. Now, this, the numbers, the dollars are just just exponentially more, uh, you know, important, shall we say. Um, the question in here, though, is one of the questions I asked Waylon was this, right? I, you know, uh, I what of, let's maybe go in two parts. One, what of the original graphic designers and artists involved in this, especially for the teams that continue to to live on, and but the logo work and all that stuff was, you know, years and years ago. Um, you almost feel sorry for some of those folks, those probably graphic designers or or ad agency creatives that were, you know. Uh, and I asked Will in this question, like, how do you feel about, let's say, the Atlanta Braves stuff that you did or or the Cosmos when they reboot? And you don't get any of that. Right. Do you, um, how do you feel when that stuff gets out there? Do you do you feel like you should be getting your fair share and your cut and it's it's a reparations? Um, and he surprised me with his answer. And he said, you know, I, the fact that they're being reborn and they're coming back, I have no problem with anybody buying any shirts or whatever if I don't get a dime from it, because it means that people care about what that logo is or represents. And they're they're willing to to, to wear it and share it for whatever reasons, with pride or, or memory or whatever. Uh, there's a question or a comment in there somewhere, I think, guys. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, listen, I, I have been, you know, I, I, uh, I, I designed the, uh, the Milwaukee Brewers look that replaced that beloved ball and glove back in 1993 going into the 1994 season. That's a couple of looks ago already. The ball and glove is now back. And, uh, you know, so basically I, I'm, I'm old enough now and I've been working in this industry enough years to have seen much of my work, a lot of my work. Now in throwback form, so makes me feel old. But uh, as Wayland said, and I've talked to him about this too, yeah, it does feel relevant. It's forever uh, to some degree. There are some memories there, whatever the merits of the look of, of a certain you know uh, certain uniform or logo is. But also, I would add to it uh, the fact that listen, he would probably agree with me when I say that 
we are commercial designers. We're not fine artists. We're not creating uh, the Sistine Chapel here. This is advertising work. This is down and dirty stuff. It is meant for uh, to serve a purpose. And, uh, you know, these days at least, and for quite some time, we're asked to sign uh, contracts, which are, are pretty airtight, tell you what you're going to do. Literally, when you design a look for a professional sports team uh, in this day and age, it says that uh, we own, you know, we, meaning the team or the league, owns the rights for every technology that has ever been invented or will be invented. So you surrender to the elements to some degree and know that you're being asked to uh, do a job and, uh, and and you've done that job and you know that's pretty much where it is yeah that's what he said it was a gig right chris go ahead oh sorry i i, I don't mean to hijack your show or anything but uh i'm i'm a fan of todd's as well so i'm genuinely curious sometimes <laughs> so i want to ask him a question if it's okay Please. Uh, yeah so so todd as a designer um how how would you feel or i don't know if this has happened to you yet where a design that you originally made, say, 20 years ago, uh, comes back and has been tweaked, you know, to modernize or whatever uh, in the time since then. Um, you know, how do you think you would feel as a designer if that happened? Uh, would you would you like to be approached to do that instead of them? Uh, yeah, just share your thoughts. <laughs> no, it's a great question, Chris, and it has happened. Uh, it has happened recently, as a matter of fact. I'm not going to name names. But here's what I think. I think that uh, I don't have to be asked to uh, to you know to deal with those tweaks or revisions or make it relevant. Uh, but I would hope that the person who is uh, given that chore handles the job with uh, sensitivity and strategy in mind, because our sports logos, as much as we love them, they are more than just pretty pictures. Uh, I always say that. Uh, listen, you know, 30 years ago when I first started doing this stuff. Our biggest challenge was, uh, what is it? Will it look good in one color on a fax cover sheet? Well, now these things get huge. They scale down to gigantic sizes in many instances, and uh, they scale down to small sizes. Uh, the likes of an avatar on Twitter. How does this stuff get embroidered? So I'm thinking of a specific instance in which uh, something I had worked on. Uh, not really that long ago, was revised and was done, uh, was revised in a way that I say, like, you know, geez, you know, somebody just put a 12-story addition on a Cape Cod house. It made no sense. Yeah, and, and that's got to be hard, right? Um, but, I, but you know, I, it's a lot like what Whalen said. You know, at the end of the day, it, it, it certainly back in the day, it was a gig. Right. And it's not like you didn't get compensated generally, depending if the teams <laughs> could pay the bills or not. That's another issue. Uh, but um, but, yeah, you know, I guess there is something that sort of there's the economic thing. And, and why wouldn't you want to be compensated for the gargantuan businesses that those these things are part of? But then there's also the it does speak to the psychic part of it. Right. Because you've it's something that you've created. It's something that's part of uh, teams and, and, and memories of, of fans and history and, and all that. And that's lasting, right? This, you can't, you know, proverbially, I guess, put a price on that because that didn't exist before you or said graphic designer or, or, or uh, artistic, uh, uh, you know, uh, gig, uh, you know, brought it into life. But back to back to hockey for a second and specifically, right? I, I, I'm I, I, all we could go on and on about the various teams and stuff. I, I'm curious, though, um, obviously for. Teams like the uh, the Oilers and the Carolina Hurricanes and and uh, the uh, the Avalanche and the, all of those got their starts, if you will, 
mostly uh, from the WHA. And really, those are kind of the only and, and obviously there are a few other teams like the, the, the Canucks that kind of got started with some uh, previous NHL minor league status of such. Um, and obviously you, you reach back a bit into into to each of those because that's the origin story of those particular franchises. Why not also and I think I know the answer to this, but why not also for kicks throw in the WHA generally given the. Uh, I don't know, outlandishness and perhaps even just uh, uh, all out, uh, 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 you know, craziness of some of those uh, logos and, and, and uniforms, too. Or was the NFL, NFL, <laughs> the NHL uh, just a, a, a big enough challenge in and of itself to not go into the the full fledged WHA as well? Kind of, kind of funny. We were just talking about this this morning, Todd. Um. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Because if there's right. a second edition, I'm just telling you right now. Oh, what, what what I joked, I said, oh, it should be some sort of expansion pack add-on that we should do one day. I mean, the the identities of those WHA teams are just so fun, uh, and the information on them is is largely lost because as those teams die off, uh, their histories get forgotten, sadly. Uh, and that and that is something I would love to dive into one day and explore just as in depth as I did with these teams, and uh, you know perhaps that's an idea for the future sometime. But uh, Going back to what Todd said earlier, um, that would just create a gargantuan uh, book if we were to include all the WHA teams because there were so many of them, so many that you forget about. Some of them only played one or two games. Some of them never played a game. Um, the Quebec Nordiques, for example, started off in San Francisco, and they never played a game there before they moved to Quebec. So, yeah, in the, in the interest of keeping this to you know something that you can carry without hurting your back, uh, <laughs> we limited this to the NHL. Yeah, and and if I if I could, uh, I am again, you know, the age that I am, and when I was a kid, one of the ways that that I could uh, feast on my logo geekdom was writing away to teams and asking for pocket schedules or yearbooks, printed yearbooks, that kind of thing. And I still have a, an envelope, uh, and in it are six or eight decals of WHA teams, 1978, 1979, somewhere around there. Uh, the Indianapolis Racers are in there. Just such expressive, amazing logos. And I thought it was cool then, the New England Whalers, right? Um, and and I really do think I, you know, <laughs> it would it would uh, interestingly it would it would you know because of the fact that WHA existed in the the early seventies, the research uh, wouldn't be onerous. There are people who are alive who worked on this stuff. We could track them down. I think it deserves its own separate volume. Yes. Uh, you're, you're bringing back memories of my childhood doing exactly the same thing for all the NASL and American Soccer League teams and waiting with bated breath at this thing called a mailbox to see if anybody wrote me back. And um, and I think that's kind of maybe where, you know, sort of the iconography and the logos and the colors and all that stuff really start to hit home. And then you start to kind of identify uh, and and sort of attach memories to uh, those teams and and that that time with the, with the colors and and the images that strike out. Let me let me get some uh, from both of you individually. Pick a team or two, or a story or two that that uh, you found especially stand out, or maybe didn't really know or thought you knew going into it that uh, through your research and uh, and the and the findings that you you came up with uh, that you know kind of just stick out in your mind as sort of being must read when one gets this book. 
Todd, go ahead. Tell your Cleveland Barons story. <laughs> oh, the Cleveland Barons. All right. We, we, we've talked more about the Cleveland Barons, gentlemen, <laughs> than anyone has spoken about the Cleveland Barons in a long time. So uh, in a nutshell, the Cleveland Barons, they played in the National Hockey League for two years. But prior to then, they were an American Hockey League franchise for many years, a very successful franchise. Really uh, a franchise that was on the cusp of NHL membership for quite some time. But uh, anyway, the the uh, the the Barons uh, and and it does come back to the WHA because the Cleveland Crusaders uh, come on the scene in the early '70s. The Barons had to go; they move away, but their name is still retained by, uh, I believe it was Nick Maletti, who uh, also had an interest in the Cleveland Cavaliers. So the name is up for grabs, and uh, the the California Golden Seals want to move to Cleveland, and they want the name Barons. And the story goes that uh, Mel Swig, a great, great name, is the uh, owner of the, the Cleveland team in the NHL that does not have a name. And he contacts Nick Maletti, the man who uh, moved the AHL Barons, I think, to Florida a couple of years earlier. And he says, what's it going to take for us to uh, obtain the, uh, the rights to this, you know, to this name? Figuring there's going to be some serious negotiation at the end of the day. And we do have it in the book. Uh, uh, Maletti says to, to Mel Swig, I want you to take my wife and I out for a nice dinner and I'll transfer the name. And that's how it came about. That's it. it all, all it took was a nice dinner. No, no vaults full of gold coins. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> these days? I, I have one more story before Chris uh, jumps in. But uh, I love the fact that the Detroit Red Wings, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Tim, the, the Red Wings, of course, were the uh, originally, of course, the Victoria Cougars playing out in British Columbia. They win the Stanley Cup. Uh, we, we don't necessarily consider this a straight move, but the, the, the majority of that roster uh, becomes a Detroit franchise in the NHL in 1926. Uh, they become the Detroit Cougars. Well, after a couple of years, uh, management in Detroit decides that um, they want to change the name of the team and they have a contest. And what was the reason for this? It was because of the fact that, and we found multiple, multiple uh, contemporary examples of the fact that people in Michigan, fans of this team, could not pronounce the word cougar. They were calling them cowgirls or cowgers. <laughs> And uh, we have a couple of specific quotes, and one of the reasons is that the, the, the cougars, or pumas, mountain lions, whatever they might be, uh, they were native to uh, Victoria, uh, Vancouver Island, uh, but not so much in Detroit at that time. <laughs> Interesting. You think it'd be more, uh, that, that's, you know, that's hard to believe, right? Truly hard to believe. It was truly hard to believe, but like I said, we found so many instances in newspapers from the early 1930s that were not joking. And it's an absolute fact. So wonderfully strange. And of course, you know, the Red Wings are the Red Wings. We don't think about these things, but there you go. What about you, Chris? I have a couple of uh, little facts that I want to share um, and things that I learned and I, I loved. Uh, for instance, you know, going back to the California Golden Seals, I, I discovered a name that seemed to have been lost to history when going through all these old news articles. And that is in between the time when they were called the Oakland Seals and the California Golden Seals in the fall of 1970, 
they didn't go from Oakland to California. They temporarily had their name changed to the Bay Area Seals. There you go. I, this for is two good weeks. I love this. Yeah. Okay, here you go. So for two weeks, uh, Charlie Finley, he bought the team. In his first press conference, after owning the team, he said, I don't know a damn thing about hockey, which is a great way to introduce yourself to the sport. First <laughs> thing he does is he changes the name of the team from Oakland Seals to Bay Area Seals because he wants to represent the whole Bay Area. Why wouldn't you, right? You get the fans from San Francisco in there. They play two games as the Bay Area Seals. Just two games. I believe they lose them both. Charlie O'Finley comes out and says, I'm changing the name of the team to the San Francisco Golden Seals. They never played a game as that name either. A couple days later, they're the California Golden Seals. So within two months of Charlie Finley owning the team, the team had, what, four names? I lost count already. Uh, and I couldn't believe that. And this Bay Area <laughs> Seals name, which just got completely lost to history. It's not it's not acknowledged by the NHL anywhere. Uh, I didn't have it on my site anywhere. And now I've made sure it's everywhere. And I made sure it's in this book. Have you, uh, were you been able to document like with a photo or two of any of the games with, and was the name Bay Area even on on any of the, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, programs or, or, or uniforms or any of that kind of stuff? Uh, any examples of that around? Was not any uniform. The uniform's the same as what California wore. It just said seals across the front. But I have found uh, several pennants and some merchandise where it actually says Bay Area Seals. You can see, you can find them on eBay. That's fantastic. I didn't even know that. And I we've done two episodes on the seals. So how about that? <laughs> any um. Uh, so oh, go ahead. You had another one too, Chris. Oh right. Uh, the Ottawa Senators. So when they came back. Uh, they they came back 1992 is when they started up again, but they got their team in 1990. Uh, Bruce Firestone, I believe his name, was the owner. He tried to bring back the team, and his whole thing was, I don't care what it takes. I'm calling this team the Ottawa Senators. So he went and he secured the rights from the family that owned the original Senators team back in the 30s. So he's at a press conference. He's getting ready to announce the fact that he's launching a campaign to bring back the Ottawa Senators. He's sitting on the stage, ready to stand up to give that speech in front of television cameras and newspapermen. And he's handed, he's he served, he's handed legal documents from a junior hockey team saying that you can't use our name. So imagine you're about to give that announcement and you've just been served legal papers saying you can't use the name. He goes up, he gives the speech, he completely ignores the fact that he got those papers. Uh, the family who owns the rights to that team, they go to the papers saying, we don't know what they're talking about, we own the rights to the name. Eventually they come to an understanding, you know, in the NHL money talks, and the Ottawa team is named the Senators. The junior team gets to retain the name, they're called the Ottawa Junior Senators going forward, they only last a couple more years, but in the end everyone's happy. Yeah, well, and perhaps maybe part of the reason why they never won an NHL championship. But, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fortune favors the bold, though. Imagine, you know, yeah. I mean, no, but movers and, and shakers. They make and, I, look, and I think the Senators are probably one of the more uh, 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 just solid and, and vivid and, and uh, evocative uh, uh, logos there is in the league, actually. I, it, it's, it, it's, I think it's very well done, and, and it, it deserves to be resurrected and, and, and maintained going forward, right? So I, I could see why. I don't, yeah, we, can't, we can't divine uh, why he was so passionate about it, but it, that logo, that makes a ton of sense, right? The government seated there, all of it, right? And plus the Senators, they were a successful team, too. We forget about that in the, you know, going back to the late 1800s. 
and we mentioned this in their chapter, the Ottawa Senators, they won several Stanley Cups even before the NHL started. And they were part of the original teams to come into the NHL. And they, they lasted, uh, do some quick math, maybe 19 seasons in the NHL before they, they moved away. But in that time, winning three or four Stanley Cups, which the current team, you know, they honor with banners. And uh, even though, you know, it feels like the 1920s and 30s were so long ago, in 1989, when he's making that announcement, there's, there are still fans around that remember that original Senators team. Uh, not to mention there were amateur teams in between then uh, that kept the name. So it was very, it was a very important name to the community, uh, much like the Winnipeg Jets. It's the only name they associated with their hockey team. They couldn't imagine cheering for any other name. So for him, that was like the most important thing. If I have a hockey team here, it has to be called the Senators or else it's not a hockey team for Ottawa. Well, it also gives us some gravitas and it's not sort of a quixotic, you know, uh, flash in the pan kind of name and stuff like arguably the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim might have been around that same time. All right, so one last question, guys. I know I could go for a couple of hours. I bet you could too. How about any things that just got went or maybe frankly still are horribly wrong when it comes to uniforms and, and logos and, and identities uh, along the way? I can think of maybe a couple in this NHL story, but are there any ones that are just either currently comical uh, or woefully misguided in, in, in history that you were able to unearth that uh, was was just a head scratcher uh, when it comes to iconography and and color schemes and, and identity. Wow, I mean, I, I think that that uh, you know part of the story of professional sports is that that you know teams experiment sometimes. And I will say, as again uh, for the umpteenth time, as a designer who was working in this space in the 1990s, this was a period that that of great experimentation. And, you know, we talk in the book about uh, the fish sticks, for instance, the New York Islanders, the New York Islanders who won multiple Stanley Cups, this, you know, cherished visual tradition of, of that, that people associated with these winners. And they went for this clean break that was very, very out of character. And, of course, 20 uh, some odd years later, quarter century later, they are look like the New York Islanders substantially of 1972 when they started, much less the Stanley Cup champion New York Islanders. I do want to point out the fact that again, in the in the 90s, it was a it was a period when licensing was booming. We talked about this earlier. There was this very tacit appeal to youth and to popular culture, which is why we have the Mighty Ducks originally, why you had the Toronto Raptors, for instance. Uh, you know, a lot of focus testing coming into play at this time. All those expansion teams across professional sports in North America wearing purple, teal, black, silver. These are the official colors of the 90s when it comes to sports. But, uh, you know, trends come and go, but the classics remain classics for a reason, I always say. And, uh, you know, things settled down. So uh, you did have teams that went way, way out there and pulled back. And just briefly, I think even looking at a team like the Philadelphia Flyers, the Flyers are this, I think, kind of a modern classic. I think they're appreciated as such, and it's a little bit different because of the fact that this is a Philadelphia team that's wearing not red, white, and blue, but orange and black. Uh, you know, there was a time that they kind of um, gilded their logo a little bit, made it dimensional, and threw some silver in the mix and some other things. Boop, they come right back to where they were when they won those two cups in the 70s. Yeah, and, and you know, 
when you asked that question, my my mind immediately went to the 1990s. There was just so much that happened in such a quick time back then. And as uh, a, a teenager then, I was that target market, right? They were designing those logos for me. And it was ex- it was very, very exciting to see what team was completely throwing away their history every year. <laughs> and just... Uh, <laughs> And completely ignoring everything that they had built up to that point. It was, what team's going to do it this year? And it seemed like nothing was untouchable, at least from the perspective of, you know, 15-year-old Chris Creamer. Uh, what I think the problem was in hindsight was that the changes were too drastic, too fast. And if you look back to all the big changes that were made then, like the Sabres or uh, the Capitals, every single one of those changes were eventually and sometimes rather quickly reverted. And, you know, if, if those designs from the 90s, the Capitals, the Sabres, if those existed in a vacuum, if those were expansion teams, I think those logos and uniforms would be loved now. It, it's just that it was too big of a change for these fans, uh, these, these people who grew up, you know, the last 20 years cheering for the blue and gold Buffalo Sabres. Suddenly, my team is now black and silver and red. I don't recognize them anymore. It's it's hard to feel uh, attached to that team. Um, but what what I find funny now is you know it's now been twenty years, and the people who weren't you know who, who weren't old enough then, they look back at it as something retro, something throwback, or people who were kids just falling in love with the game at the time, they they feel more of a connection to those original logos from the nineties that we sort of look at as sort of uh, going in the wrong direction. That's their logo. That's the one they associate with the most. And now we're seeing a bit of a push to go back to those old 90s logos. Like there, there's a, a whole whack of Islanders fans who love that fish sticks logo from the mid 90s. Uh, every time the Sabres announce something, I get 30 tweets back at me saying, switch back to the goat head. You know, it's it's to me, it it's weird because that's not what they're supposed to look like. But thinking from the perspective of those fans, that's what sort of makes them feel more comfortable. Hey, that's my team. That's my logo. Those are my colors, not the blue and gold. I, I grew up with the black and silver, for example. So it, it's kind of funny to watch it sort of go in a, in a cycle. Um, you know, 10 years from now, are the Sabres going to be switching back to black and red? I don't know. But the people who grew up in that era, they will be working for the Sabres. They will be the ones making the decisions. They'll be the ones buying things. And maybe that'll be motivation enough to make the change again. Well, that sounds about right. I mean, you, you, you travel of the 70s like I was, right? You know, the happy days uh, celebrating the 50s, right? It's just, it's about a 20-year, you know, generational kind of thing and uh, music and, and and culture and all that kind of stuff. It it seems like that uh, is rhythmically uh, in sync, I guess, with uh, how other things seem to be sort of uh, uh, made more memorable as people get to a certain age and start to uh, wax uh, nostalgic about, quote unquote, the... The good old days. All right, let me, I will ask you one last question, then I'll let you guys promote, okay? Um, and this really is more a tinge towards where the future is going. And I guess most specifically, the two most recent uh, franchises in the NHL, the, the latter of which hasn't yet to uh, to play a game. One's the, obviously the Vegas Golden Knights. And um, what seems to be, frankly, a very meticulous and well thought out and frankly, heavily invested in process uh, for the new team in Seattle, the Kraken. What are your thoughts about each of those two teams? Do you think they they've gotten it right? Do you think those are are going to stand the test of time, or you know, uh, how do, it, it, do you think that they uh, have created good histories for themselves given their relative uh, uh, 
you know, uh, recent uh, uh, arrival on the scene uh, relative to, you know, the, the, the gobs of other, other teams with such, such longer histories? I think it's interesting. I, I will first of all say that I think they did get it right in both instances. Adidas, working with the teams, working with the NHL, came up with these looks that I think are, yes, rooted in tradition. Uh, they wanted to appear established. They weren't going nuts the way that, you know, some of the fun teams that we just discussed uh, embarked upon their maiden journey with. Um, but a couple of things. I, I think it bears it bears saying that hockey is a little bit different from any other sport in the sense that your crest is really everything, right? Your crest is a little bit different than I don't know, name a, an analogy would be, you know, the, the Yankees have this NY. Uh, they have a different NY on their hat than they do on their chest, and they wear the words New York on the road. Um, I think it, it, it's fair to say, for the most part, that hockey, the best, the best hockey NHL crests, primary logos, are uh, kind of devolved. They don't have a lot of words in them, um, and they have pretty bold imagery. Uh, and, and, you know, I think in the case of both of these teams, the colors are right on, there's proper contrast, there's not a lot of, uh, needless detail, and there are secondary elements, um, that are leveraged in other places. Uh, the Golden Knights have these, these lovely, uh, shoulder patches, for instance, you know, but the, but the crests are really good, fundamental, solid, solid pieces of the foundation. And I agree with Todd. I mean, looking at the the logos for these two teams, they look like they they could have been playing now for quite some time, right? The Golden Knights logo, especially, that shield fits in with the rest of the NHL as if it's been there forever. Um, and regardless of of how we feel about these logos, personally, I like them both. Uh, the fans of these teams, and this goes back to what I was just saying, uh, these are going to be the these are going to be the logos that they they love forever, right? So 20 years from now, maybe the Kraken think about changing their name. Maybe the Kraken think about changing their colors. Maybe the Golden Knights do something crazy. These are going to be the logos that their fans are going to be begging them to switch back to. This is going to be their forever look evolved at some point over the t- over history. And that just sort of goes for every NHL franchise, right? Like, this is the logo we want. It has to look like the, the logo that they started using originally. Uh, and so regardless of how they look, I think they look great, but this is sort of going to be their forever look. Look, and I think for you guys, right, this is uh, job security, right? Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the careers that you've created for yourselves, so to speak, right? Because, uh, it's, it's, it's ongoing, right? There's, it's regenerative, right? Whether it's an older team looking to refresh, uh, the, the addition of new teams and there's always sort of. I guess you sort of hinted at it before. Everybody, the only thing that's constant in life, and and maybe in particular with the NHL or any other sport for that matter, is change, right? Uh, there's always some reason or some new owner or some new agenda or whatever, right? Whether it be fish sticks or otherwise, right? That, uh, that you know, kind of either modernizes or wants to go back and retro or whatever. And um, that's what makes this book uh, just absolutely fascinating. And I look, I, if this is your first uh, collaboration, I hope it's the first of many, um, because Lord knows I can think of other not only adjacencies in hockey, but other leagues and teams and all that kind of stuff. And um, I'm sure you don't need my suggestions of that. But I'm sure uh, if you have any modicum of success with this, which I'm sure you will, uh, I, I think you've got uh, some nice runway for for, for other topics uh, to come. Why don't you guys promote? Uh, I know uh, as we record this, 
uh, and maybe before when we drop this, I'm not quite sure when we will, but uh, it may be just not quite yet available, but is I'm, I'm cert- certain or pretty certain that it's going to be available for, for pre-order and all that kind of stuff. What do you uh, give us some promotional stuff as well as uh, not only where to buy it, but maybe some of the other things that you want to do to help support it? Well, uh, the book does come out November 3rd. Uh, so we'll have that media day all to ourselves. Nothing else going on. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is available for pre-order. You can get signed copies uh, along with some cool uh, illustrations that uh, Todd made, some custom illustrations, and signed hockey cards featuring us wearing our favorite retro jerseys at uh, our website for the book, which is fabricofthegamebook.com. you got to check it out. If you want to see this book, go there. Uh, Todd? Yeah, I think beyond that, it is, uh, as we say, available wherever books are sold. That would be quite literally. Um, you can get it through your giant, uh, you know, behemoth, nameless, uh, yeah, you know, the place where people buy books. And also your independent bookstores, which we encourage. A uh, couple of things real quick. I think, you know, the, the name of the book is Fabric of the Game. The story is behind the NHL's names, logos, and uniforms. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't include the fact that we have a forward by the esteemed chairman of the board of the Hockey Hall of Fame, Hall of Famer, of course, Lanny McDonald, an iconic Leaf Colorado Rocky and Calgary Flame. And uh, we feel elevated by having him having written our forward. Well, and I've had the... uh... Uh, the sheer uh, joy of having a, an advanced look of this book, and it's it's uh, it's gorgeous. It's um, it, it's it's and it's all it's got all that uh, 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 not only uh, the the iconography and, and some of frankly some of the things that that go into it. Like I'm looking at, for example, the uh, the Anaheim Ducks uh, logo uh, evolution. Uh, you know, it's all very almost like behind the scenes, sort of in the the creative or the ideation of these things. That's that's a really cool sort of peek behind, and it gives you a real sense that these, you know, these logos and, and these looks and these color schemes, maybe in the past they might have been, you know, kind of, uh, I want to say throwaway ideas, but just, uh, you know, maybe not given a, as much uh, uh, deep thought. But, but you know, as, as the years have rolled on, I mean, these become, these are, these are almost intricate processes. I mean, you mentioned focus groups and that kind of stuff, and maybe or maybe not, that's the reason, the way to do it. But um, these are not done sort of necessarily by chance, perhaps in the the oldest of days, they might have been by chance, but uh, it, this is a really interesting peek behind sort of the scenes of all of that, and and frankly, the history that's wrapped up in it. And um, I don't frankly think you need to be a hockey fan uh, to enjoy this book, because if you're interested in anything related to pro sports and the the, uh, the the versions of the teams, and obviously things like logos and looks and and, and uniforms and all that stuff, uh, you're going to just enjoy this book. It's 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 really it's it's quite something. And uh, again, I hope and pray that uh, this is not the last of your uh, collaborative efforts. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a, a terrific conversation. We are the three of us kindred spirits, to say the least. Uh, and I do think uh, I, I would, for one, agree. I think that this is going to cross over into places for you know people who like design people who like popular culture um there's a lot of layers to the onion and uh, we are talking about what comes next but we've got to get this out there and birth it into the world successfully first yeah absolutely and this was just an absolute joy to work on uh just i i pinch myself every day thinking about uh what i got to do on this book and i can't wait to uh, see how it's received by everyone it it's really is exciting to hear you know what uh, people like you tim think 
uh, upon reading it, and I can't wait till it gets out there. I can't wait to hold it in my hand, frankly. Uh, <laughs> you know, I want to read the book again, too. Our hearty appreciation to Todd and to Chris, a, uh, a tremendous delve into hockey history and uh, lots of places for you to follow up. So here we go. Uh, if you would like a VIP version uh, of the book with some signatures by the authors and some other goodies, the place to go is fabricofthegamebook.com. Again, fabricofthegamebook.com, all one word. Uh, and you will find a direct uh, connection to uh, the publisher. And uh, you can order in advance if you're listening to this episode prior to November 3rd, uh, that interesting day in the United States. Uh, you uh, can pre-order it if it is November 3rd or afterwards, and uh, this nation is still standing, uh, you can get it directly. Uh, but again, fabricofthegamebook.com, and uh, you will get a VIP uh, various versions of this book directly from the publisher and the authors. If you're a cheapskate uh, like me, you can uh, just uh, whisk away to our uh, Amazon link from our website, our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up uh, this episode number 185 with Chris and Todd. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you'll just be, you're uh, uh, obviously going to get it much quicker probably. And, uh, you know, it's the bare bones uh, kind of uh, approach. Uh, but uh, if you're lusting for uh, any morsel of what we just discussed, uh, that's the way uh, to most easily do it and maybe support our show uh, in the process. Uh, let's see. Uh, Chris's uh, website is also worth a bookmark and then some. Uh, his uh, website is sportslogos.net. Sportslogos.net. Fascinating treasure trove of everything related to the history of sports logos and iconography. Warning, you will lose a lot of time, uh, so make sure that you uh, set aside a good hour or two or more as you go down that rabbit hole of intrigue. Uh, Todd Radom's site is Todd Radom, T-O-D-D-R-A-D-O-M, as in Mary, ToddRadom.com. It's Todd Radom Design, and uh, he's a pro in all this stuff. He creates new stuff. Uh, he does lots of throwback kinds of things. Uh, he is available for hire. Uh, he works with uh, some of the top uh, sports and entertainment properties out there. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in uh, his past, uh, present, and potentially future work and all the stuff that goes into it, again, ToddRadom.com. And a, remi a reminder uh, that Todd also has another book out now called Winning Ugly, a visual history of the most bizarre baseball uniforms ever worn. You can click uh, on our website as well uh, to get that or uh, directly to his publisher for that book uh, from uh, his website as well. Lots of good stuff. And uh, as you heard in our, our chat, lots more, hopefully, uh, to unearth not only in the NHL, let's hope maybe some WHA expansion uh, from this topic, but pr plenty of other sports uh, and logos and stories and stuff. And, and uh, we uh, reserve the right to call them the minute that they have another project out there. But let's help them with this one first, shall we? Uh, and again, that's Fabric of the Game. It is a great book. It's a, it's a, a true uh, deep dive into the visual culture uh, of the of hockey and, and the NHL in particular. And it's uh, a, a great gift as the holidays uh, uh, soon approach. Uh, let's see, what else? Our uh, our website, yes, again, it's goodseatsstillavailable.com. What are you going to find there? Well, you're going to find every stinking 
uh, version of our 185 episodes thus far. Uh, you can download them from the site if you'd like or stream them right there from the site if you uh, if you prefer. Uh, it's also a great way to stay in touch with the show. You'll see all of our social media links uh, on Twitter. We're at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still Available. Yes, we're on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us there. If you want to send us email, there's a link on the site, but also you can do that directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, yes, we have a little uh, weekly newsletter. Uh, you got to search around for it on the site, but uh, if you, you do stumble across it, just to enter in your name and your email address, and you will be added to our growing and mighty list of folks that kind of get the little inside uh, tip uh, a couple of hours or days ahead as to what each week's episode is going to be, to be in the know before the hoi polloi uh, and uh, the just average Joe on the street. And uh, let's see, one last uh, uh, tip of the... Um, uh, of the, I don't know, how about the, uh, uh, you know, like, how about the Atlanta Flames? I think we, we we tip our Atlanta Flames cap, or maybe maybe we'll just put that down for a second and tip our Atlanta Thrashers cap. Either way, uh, in the general direction of our pal Jerry Payne, who lives in the metropolitan Atlanta area, and I'm sure has gone to uh, a game or two from both of those previous franchises in the NHL. Uh, and uh, we uh, thank him, of course, as we do each and every week for his expert production skills. He is Jerry Payne, audio excellence, and uh, we could not do this show without him. That is for sure. We also couldn't do this show without you listening, giving us a reason to do it in the first place. And uh, we uh, thank you for listening thus far, and uh, we'll see you next week with another fun-filled episode. And uh, we appreciate your listening to no end. Take care, everybody. And uh, we hope to see you or listen to you or whatever. Audio uh, 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 entertain you, yes, next week. Take care and bye-bye.